If it's happening now, we're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Tom McKay is on the board. Will Erskine booking the guests. In the newsroom, Dave Woodard. Congratulations, you have made it through week one of 2023. No need to leave the Christmas lights up another 50. Here's Scott Thompson. There you go. Good afternoon. It is 3.08. It is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson, Hamilton Today. All right. We have heard, uh, obviously, we're coming up to almost a year uh, where uh, after uh, since the Russian invasion, rather, of Ukraine. And this was supposed to be pretty quick. And, of course, it wasn't. It has dragged on. And many say, have said that Russia has already lost this war simply because uh, it has not been able to uh, to move forward effectively. And most recently, uh, Putin declaring a 36-hour ceasefire uh, for the uh, Orthodox Christmas. However, is that actually happening? Let's bring in Arl Brown, Professor of International Relations and senior member of the Monk School of Global Affairs at the University of Toronto. And with us now, Arl, thank you for your time. I hope you're well. Happy New Year. Thank you. Happy New Year to you. So is this a real ceasefire, Oral? I mean, I hear that these things take weeks to plan, or is this just lip service? It is largely lip service. You will notice that Putin did not declare a ceasefire in December uh, during uh, Christmas in Western Europe and Western Ukraine. He declared it after the patriarch of the Russian Orthodox Church called for a ceasefire uh, to be held for 36 hours. It was a unilateral declaration. It is largely for domestic consumption in Russia. It is meant to portray Ukraine as intransigent, as disrespectful, and that Putin is basically the guardian of Russian orthodoxy and Russian civilization. Are two parties needed in order to have a ceasefire? I mean, is that something Putin de- uh, can declare on his own, or is that something that has to be done in unison with Ukraine or, or any other enemy for that matter? Anyone can declare a ceasefire to make it stick. Both parties have to basically agree to it. And uh, there's doubt that even uh, on the Russian part, this has been a full ceasefire because there's no evidence that they stopped fighting around Bakhmut, where they had some advantage. The Ukrainians uh, claim that uh, Russia has continued to fire some rockets, though at a lower rate. And certainly in the case of the Ukrainians, they have viewed this as a sham as something that is uh, uh, of only propaganda value or an attempt to try to regroup uh, during those uh, 36 hours. So for all intents and purposes, there is no ceasefire. Uh, That was my next question. Is uh, Many have said that this is just a chance to regroup and and reload. Is that the case here, do you think? Or is this more uh, under the guise of, as you said earlier, uh, religious leaders asking him to do so? This has been uh, the pattern of uh, Soviet behavior before, Russian behavior since, that they use a pause to regroup. We can go back all the way in the Soviet days, uh, and let's not forget that uh, Putin was a KGB agent uh, during Soviet times. That's who began his career. In 1956, for example, when uh, the Hungarian... uh, Revolution began, and for all intents and purposes, the Soviet forces were defeated in in Budapest. They uh, called for a ceasefire. They pretended they were withdrawing. They regrouped and then attacked with massive force and crushed the Hungarian Revolution in a very, very bloody way. And uh, this has repeated a number of times. So President Zelensky has good reason to be very suspicious. Um, The ceasefire was first proposed by the patriarch. Uh, of the Orthodox Church in Russia, and one would think that this was a noble gesture on the part of a religious leader, but the Patriarch of Russia has acted more as an agent of the Kremlin than as an independent religious leader. Is Putin feeling increased pressure at home, especially from rich oligarchs and stuff to and such to get this done, to finish this, to find a solution of some way? Is he, is he, is he on thinner ice than he was, uh, say, even a few months ago? If we look at this from the perspective of what are the kind of losses that Russia has suffered, are the sanctions beginning to have some effect, then there ought to be pressure. But dictatorships don't quite the way uh, work the way 
we expected in a transparent system. And this is why dictatorships, as I noted a number of times, tend to look strong and stable until all of a sudden they are no longer strong and stable. And so it's hard to know and even harder to predict what will happen. I suspect there are strains. We know that uh, even some of Putin's supporters are saying that the military in Russia should do better, that uh, there has been some uh, surprising criticism of uh, military leaders as not uh, doing enough or not being successful enough, even though they have launched everything they have at the uh, Ukrainians. But uh, Vladimir Putin is not about to leave voluntarily. He will gamble to see whether he can divide the West, whether he can wear the Ukrainians out. He has transferred and transitioned from a war of aggression to basically what is a war of terror. Are Russians asking themselves at this point, what are we getting out of this? I mean, other than, a, other, than a dis, other than a destroyed Ukraine, I mean, what's in it for, for, for the Russian citizenry? What Putin is selling is nationalism. And uh, he is playing on the worst instincts of the Russian people. And that is a fear of the outside, a fear of uh, foreigners, uh, xenophobia. He is claiming that it is Russia that is under attack that the West NATO is trying to dismantle, dismember Russia, that uh, the civilization uh, that Russia and I are used to, that is in danger through uh, these Western uh, woke uh, kind of uh, uh, cultural uh, approaches. And so it's difficult to know how many people believe this. We know that when he began this mass mobilization, which he called a partial mobilization, uh, he mobilized supposedly something like 300,000 troops, perhaps as many as double that fled. So obviously, there are many people in Russia who do not believe it, but it's very difficult to protest in the open because even calling this a war can land you in jail. R.O. Brown with us, Professor of International Relations and a senior member of the Monk School of Global Affairs at the University of Toronto. Arl, as always, thank you so much for your time. Be well. Have a great weekend. Thank you. Have a nice weekend as well. We certainly have seen the story. Perhaps you've seen it on the news or online uh, in regard to the reporter that took a picture of a package of chicken breasts at a Loblaws store. Uh, now, mind you, they were premium chicken breasts. And damn, they better be because they were going for over $37 for the package of five. $37. That's like, like seven bucks a, seven bucks a breast. My goodness. Is Galen Weston, CEO of Loblaws, now public enemy number one? Let's bring in Alyssa Freeman, PR and pop culture expert, and is with us now. Alyssa, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I am, Scott. Thank you for asking. It's amazing how things like this jump and take off. And in the media world, we're always looking for things like this to to get the public's attention. But, you know, something as simple as going for a uh, shopping trip to the store, looking at chicken breasts and finding this price, and blam, this has taken off. You know, when you live by the sword, you die by the sword, Scott. And Galen likes to be out front. He likes to be, you know, um, front and center. And when you put yourself out there, you become very recognizable and tied to the brand. So, for example, if you were going to complain to somebody at Sobeys, would you actually know who to complain to? No, mm. you would not. Um, if you were going to play, complain to somebody at Metro, would you actually know who to go to complain to? No. But... You know, Galen is out there. So he becomes public enemy number one simply by virtue that people know who he is because of all the self-promotion and how he has tied himself to the brand. That's the first thing. You know, the second thing, I saw that tweet when it first came out and I actually had to look really carefully. And I think like everybody else, I enlarged the picture and I thought, well, how meaty are those chicken breasts? But then what happened is that BlogTO went and shopped other stores for essentially what I hope were the same type of packages, you know, with five chicken breasts and saw a huge price discrepancy. So that leads consumers to only one thought and one thought only that Loblaws is gouging them. That being said, in fairness to Loblaws, and and just to get the facts straight here, uh, apparently Loblaws said these were premium brand chicken breasts. It's like, you know, hand-fed chickens or whatever, the deboned, de-skinned, all of that stuff, which, you know, I'm not sure the ones in the blog TO were an exact comparison of what these were. 
Oh, I completely agree with that. But, you know, it's hard to describe that and tell that to the average Joe who's just appalled yeah. at the price. You know, when people jump on a bandwagon, Scott, they don't really care about exact comparisons and exact facts. All they want to do is to keep beating that same drum that they're mad about until they find something else to yell about the next week. I have seen, listen, there is a big price discrepancy. I do a lot of the shopping in my house, and I know that when I buy, you know, a really great chicken breast versus sort of, you know, smaller and substandard, there is obviously a price difference. So are people making a mountain out of a molehill? Maybe. Are people just angry that prices uh, all across the board are just rising and you don't get as much bang uh, for your buck as you used to? You know, if you spent $100 at the grocery store and you used to get maybe, you know, 10 or 11 items on the conveyor belt, now you're getting about six. I think it's a confluence of people just really upset with the amount of money that food is costing and that prices are not coming down anytime soon. I would agree with that 100%. Do you think this is a turning point in this discussion? You know, I think it's a point. Do I think it's going to be a turning point in terms of how much food is costing? No. I think there's a lot of factors around the world, scarcity of uh, items and of some you know, the things that go into those items, scarcity of wheat, that we are going to continue to see higher prices. You know, my barometer, Scott, is that when I go shopping, I look at the price of romaine lettuce. I love romaine lettuce. And about a month or two ago, it was ten ninety nine for a bag yeah. where you get, you know, those three nice little heads of lettuce yep. and now it's gone down to about 6.99 so i still think that's a lot of money but if i really want my romaine i'm going to pay it but that's sort of my barometer of things so i don't think that this is an inflection point that's going to determine or help lower food prices i think this is just another inflection point where people are taking notice and getting angry uh, do you think there should be more competition? It seems to be, you know, you were listing off those grocery stores. And I'm thinking of how many of them are owned by Gail and Weston. Um, but do you think there needs to be more competition? Do we need a piggly wiggly up here? Well, you know, that's very interesting, you should say. So when you look at the, the grocery stores, the blog T.O. went to, there's Loblaw. There's Longos, owned by Loblaw. There's No Frills owned by blah, blah. So, I mean, like, it's a bit of a, you know, it's interesting. So when you think that you need more competition, I think that more competition is always great, uh, Scott. And I, and I think that what it does is that it forces other, you know, companies that have had it really good up here for a very long time uh, to get back onto their toes and get worried about who's coming up. So do I think that we can use for some more competition? Yeah. But do I also think that we have a great variety of different grocery chains, uh, including independents? and I shop at an independent um, in this province? Yeah, I think we do. Uh, Experts have said we will now see the uh, grocery chains get together and discount chicken. Are you expecting that much? (laughs) Maybe that's what happened to your romaine lettuce. Well, maybe that is what happens. I do know, though, a um, vegetable and fruit uh, exporter, so I understand how much uh, a case of romaine has gone from like a couple hundred bucks to about a thousand. So I think that if you, the last time you ordered Swiss chalet and you asked for a salad, they're not selling salads anymore, or maybe they are now, but about a month ago they weren't because it was just too much money probably on their end to make any money to sell them. Um, I, I don't know about that. I mean, do I think that, you know, I think people would sort of call that collusion at some point saying they were trying to, you know, price fix or set prices. Um, I think what has to happen though, Scott, is that grocery chains have to have better messaging to their consumers when things like this happen. There is no reason that a company as large as Loblaw or any other large grocery chain doesn't have a playbook that when people start screaming about prices. So if that's the case, and it's no been no secret for the past year that prices are of food is gone crazy, it's no secret that that should have been included in their key messages. So they're just not sitting flat-footed, but that they actually have something proactive to say. Is this a message that consumers are rebelling? Is that resonating? I mean, you know, we said, is it going to change anything? Probably not. Um, But is this a sign that, you know what, the public's paying a lot more attention to this than people think? I would hope so. I think that, you know, in some cases, I think that sort of supermarket magnets look back and say, well, where else are you going to get your food? Because I own most of the groceries chains in this in this country. 
But on the other hand, I don't think that people can have um, or grocery chains can have that smug response. I think they have to understand that it is the people that do. They do have a choice of where they want to go and where they want to buy their food. So will this give a, a greater rise to independent grocery stores who don't have to depend on such a large hierarchy in order to price set? Maybe. I think that you can never take for granted um, the people that essentially feed you. And I think that, um, you know, supermarkets and those who run them and those who uh, are responsible for the messaging need to have a little bit more empathy not only in their messaging when they're questioned about this, but be proactive. Be, I mean, yes, they put on sales and whatnot, but maybe be more proactive about what they're trying to do to help people afford food within the many aisles. Alyssa Freeman with us, PR and pop culture expert, 37 bucks for five chicken breasts. The rest is history, as they say. Alyssa, as always, thanks for the time. Better Scott. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, nobody nobody better let, have left a morsel on their plate. <laughs> Do you really even want to eat them? Maybe you should just frame them. I don't know. All right. Have a great weekend. Thanks for your time. Take uh, Be well. Okay. I think a lot of us were just thankful that Team Canada got off to a strong start last night, uh, unlike the USA game, uh, and eventually uh the goal was reached but it was uh it was a nail biter let's bring in Stephen Ellis sports journalist associate editor of the daily faceoff and with us now Stephen thanks for the time i hope you're well Yes, absolutely. Thanks so much. So uh, as I mentioned in the intro, uh, I think a lot of us were just happy to get off to a strong start with uh, the game last night, scoring those goals and such. But man, that third goal seemed to be elusive to uh, put this out of reach. Uh, Did you see this coming? Were you concerned about this? I think I was a little surprised that Czechs kind of laid back so much in the first two periods, given that Kona will be solved tournament long. But at the same time, the Czechs really liked back against Sweden, too, before uh, taking that game in overtime, that was only two to one. So uh, they kind of knew that feeling. But I think with with the way Canada played, they played aggressive in the first two periods. And I think Czech just played a bit more what we expected in that third period. And that's kind of what happened with that result. Um, it, it seemed that, um, and you know, they always say you got to play three periods. You got to play till the end of the game. So lots of hockey left, all those cliches and such. But man, they just did not give up. Yeah, that, that's something where, you know, the, the from the, the start, I was looking at the Czechs being this team that was going to be just so relentless from the beginning. And uh, to see them win that first game and then uh, to see a canal progressed ever since. And I think that was kind of almost a worst case scenario for Canada to have to face them in that round because I think Canada would have been able to outmatch Sweden. And of course, Sweden lost their game eight to seven in the in the bronze medal game. That was unbelievable. But I think Canada would have been a better match there. So the Czechs, they just did a good job of really shutting down Connor Bedard in particular. And when that happened, Canada had to find offense somewhere else. What about playing three periods after a tough USA game? Well, it was tough because the one thing that is kind of unusual is usually the home team in the tournament likes to take the early game for the semifinal. Um, and so Canada actually played the later game. And so they had less time to prepare for that one. But I think, you know, the that challenge the Americans gave and the one that Slovakia gave showed that Canada can't let their opponents get back into these games. They have to play harder. It wasn't those games against against Austria, against Germany, and to an extent even Sweden, where Sweden kind of just laid low in the beginning of that game. So I think that it, it was just something where they needed to play a whole 60 minutes of hockey. They didn't, but they scored when it mattered. Uh, obviously, uh, Connor Bedard, the story of this uh, of this tournament and the records that he has broken and such, and especially with him being such a young player. Um, uh, again, we needed the rest of the team to step up for this because they knew that that obviously uh, Bedard would be a target. Uh, great to see that this gets spread around last night. Yeah, I think that was uh, Shane Wright's best game in the tournament. Came under the perfect time. It was his birthday too. Brendan Ottman, he was a wrecking ball out there, like we know he could be. And Dylan Gunther scoring that goal. And it was kind of just the mindset for me, at least, was if anyone's going to do it, it's going to be Bedard, the same way he did against Slovakia. Yeah. But the problem was just the, the Czech defense just kind of let Gunther walk in and let Wall walk in, and that worked out for Canada. What about Team Canada's defense? Not my favorite. Uh, it was not Canada's best uh, uh, blue yeah. line I've ever seen. And Grant Clark, an NHL draft pick, played in the NHL this year. I didn't think he had a great tournament, but... I thought Ethan Del Mastro was a huge, huge piece of that team. I think didn't get enough uh, attention, mostly because he wasn't out there getting a ton of points. But uh, yeah, it was it was kind of their weakness this year. 
And, and what about the future of, uh, of Bedard? I mean, even when the reporter asked him at the end of the game uh, about what he had accomplished, he said, hey, man, it's not about me. It, it's great to see that kind of maturity in a young man. This is a guy that's been in the spotlight since he was about 13 years old. So he knows how to handle it. He works and trains as NHL players throughout the year during the offseason. So he kind of knows how to handle that pressure. But, you know, talking to scouts, a lot of them say he's the next McDavid. He's got Matthews qualities. He's got Marner qualities. He's got Patrick Kane qualities. You put that together, he's going to be a superstar in the NHL pretty quickly. And what about Halifax and Moncton as the host of this? I mean, what an incredible show they put on last night supporting this team. Absolutely. I was in, in Edmonton during that summer tournament when there was about like 15 fans in every single game. And that was a bit of a depressing atmosphere. But to see those buildings, even for the relegation games, getting almost a sellout for Latvia versus Austria. But then to see the gold medal game, that felt like the World Juniors I grew up watching and remembering. And what about the future of this team? Will we see them all in the NHL eventually? I'd expect that for sure. There are going to be a lot of them. I know next year's Canada World Junior team might only have two or three players returning, so it'll be kind of a limited one. But that part of that is because we are going to see a lot of these guys in the NHL next year. Stephen Ellis. We'll see, right? Guys like that. Stephen Ellis with us, sports journalist, associate editor of the Daily Faceoff, talking about Team Canada's win last night. Stephen, thanks for the time. Be well. Yep, thanks so much. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. Have you been watching what's going on in the United States, or have you just given up? I think they're in triple-digit votes right now. And then when the, we into the triple digits? No, not quite yet. Uh, but we're getting there. 89, 90 uh, for the votes uh, attempting to make Kevin McCarthy the speaker. But it just keeps going around in circles. Uh, what is next? Let's bring in Brian J. Karam, political analyst for CNN, White House reporter, columnist for Salon.com, the Washington diplomat and host of Just Ask the Question podcast and author of the book, uh, Free the Press, The Death of American Journalism and How to Revive It. Brian, how are you today? Ah, cold. <laughs> We're at the White House. It was hot and steamy on Capitol Hill as they voted and didn't vote. And, and then uh, here at the White House, they were uh, honoring the people on uh, from the January 6th insurrection uh, two years ago. So those who put their lives on the line were honored by the president. While over on Capitol Hill, we saw the tail end of that insurrection as those 20 holdouts from the Republican Party continue to try and press their minority views upon the majority. So it's an interesting day in D.C. <laughs> Yeah, how bizarre is that to be uh, marking the second anniversary of the January sixth resurrection or insurrection, rather, and uh, and doing this at the same time? So, are, are, is, yeah, I know, I know. <laughs> what does that say? Uh, all right, so uh, are we just going to keep doing this till he gets in, or is someone else going to step up? Uh, how does this end, or is it just democracy uh, at work, as he says? Well, it's it's constipation at work. I mean the. The GOP ran on the idea they sold the American public that, you know, America, that government doesn't work and they're proving it every day. Um, they're in charge. It's a Republican problem. They're going to have to hash it out among themselves. Uh, they will make a deal. McCarthy has made considerable number of deals. He's given away the store and trying to get himself the leadership role, which would be greatly diminished if he is successful in doing it. Meanwhile, um, I was speaking with Democratic leaders today who say they've wor- they're they're working with some angry uh, members of the GOP who will work with them to change the rules. So even if if McCarthy concedes all these rules, the, the Democrats and some of the moderate Republicans will go in and change them back. So it's it, it's just uh, it, there seems to be no way out of the fire. There's no one there uh- who can adequately you know captain or helm the boat and get it out of storm. So this is the twelfth bid, I understand. Is that accurate, or are we passed out yeah, those numbers now? Twelve. It'll go to. Th- they have adjourned. It will go to a thirteenth vote tonight. Uh, he's still short a, a few votes, and he's going to have to go and and try and lobby three or four uh, Republicans to get him to flip to vote for him. He still has the most votes, though. It's not like um, it, you know he's he's yes. Exactly. You know, he, it, it's, but it, well, like, is there anybody else to replace him? I guess my point is, who, is there somebody else better in line? No, there's no. That's part of the problem. There's no way out of the woods. There is no consensus candidate. There is no one that everyone in the GOP will support. 
much less the, the Democrats. The Democrats are stuck at 212. They'll sit pat and let the Republicans hash this out among themselves. It's going to be an interesting tonight at 10 o'clock will be the tale of the tape after three days of, of this type of negotiation, whether or not McCarthy can get the necessary 218 to uh, install him as the uh, Speaker of the House. Uh, far right, obviously extreme far right, doesn't like him. Uh, Donald Trump has said, let's just get on with it and supported this candidate. What does that say about Donald Trump's power over that extreme right? Donald Trump is impotent. <laughs> and I don't mean I'm politically impotent. I don't know about otherwise, maybe both. But he's he's definitely politically impotent in in this regard, and there's simply no way that um, his if his word had carried, this wouldn't have gone on as long as it's gone on. But to delineate, you know, the Republicans as you know, it's the far right and then the farther right. I mean, remember McCarthy yeah. is one of the ones who supported the insurrection at one point in time. So these people not that you'll never get a a Democrat to cross the aisle. They're going to hold pat, and so it's going to be McCarthy's ability to court some of the extreme crazies in his own party and give concessions that uh, probably won't hold up in order to get his speakership. And it'll be a very limited, weakened speakership. Uh, What about damage to the Republican brand over this? What Republican brand is left? There's (laughs) The Republican Party, (laughs) as it existed, has ceased to exist. What it is now is an amalgamation of, of authoritarians, uh, Nazis, racists, misogynists, and liars. I mean, you know, I heard George Santos was, you know, uh, up for a speakership, but he's probably lying. Uh, what does Americans take on this? How, how, does, how does the country feel? Well, <laughs> that's a good question. And the GOP has come out and said they are a united party. And that the United States will function with a united party and Americans will hold in respect those in uh, Congress who are united and are lobbying for what Americans want. That's a great description of the Democrats, a horrible description of the Republicans. So we'll see. What about those that say, hey, you're just seeing democracy at work. This is this is is the system working. Now, look, it's been 100 years since we've gone through this. Right. And it's been since before the Civil War that it's gone on this long. So this is not the day-to-day operation of democracy at work. It is a dysfunctional democracy headed by the Republicans who claim they can lead but can't even pick a leader. Uh, Only got a few seconds left. What do you predict? Where's this going? I'd be an idiot to predict it, brother, because (laughs) nobody knows. When it gets down in the weeds like this, the frustration levels are such that any deal could be made. We don't know what it'll be. Most likely it'll be uh, McCarthy, but we'll have to see what concessions he makes, what the Democrats do, what the Republicans do. And it's not beyond the pale for six or seven of these so-called moderate Republicans to say, ah, to hell with this. I'll just uh, <clears throat> I'll throw in with Hakeem Jeffries and, and he'd be the speaker. I mean, anything is possible after 12 votes on the floor. It's, you know, you, people's resolve tend to wane after that. And they're pretty upset because they're, you know, a lot of them like to go home for the weekends and they're not going to make those weekend flights back to their home districts because they're having to go through this. Brian J. Karam with us, political analyst for CNN, White House reporter, columnist for Salon.com and The Washington Diplomat. Brian, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well and good luck this weekend. You too, brother. Have a good one. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. All right. You know the story? We were talking about it earlier. A Toronto reporter that went into a a Loblaws grocery store and uh, took a picture of a package of five chicken breasts. uh, And the price was $37.03. That's like uh, seven bucks a breast. Uh, Now, to the defense of the grocery store, apparently these are, um, it's it's special chicken. It's uh, deboned, skinless, all that sort of stuff, uh, raised by, uh, you know, special farmers. I I think they were raised by royalty. They're royal chickens, actually. Uh, anyway, it's been getting a lot of attention, and a lot of people have uh, have spoke up about this. Uh, everybody knows what it's like with food inflation, inflation just in general. Are we at a turning point here? Let's bring in 
Dr. Sylvain Charlebois, Professor of the Food Distribution and Policy Program, Director of the Agri-Food and Analytic, uh, Analytics Lab at Dalhousie University, and with us now. Sylvain, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. I'm sure lots of people are talking about this in your circles. Uh, no kidding. <laughs> Never thought that uh, 2023 would start with uh, Chicken Gate. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Chicken Gate. I love it. So That's right. um, what, are we at a turning point here, Sylvan? What, 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 what are your thoughts? What's your take here? Where is this going? Well, turning point. Uh, first of all, let's talk about the picture itself. Uh, uh, the picture was uh, was was about uh, chicken breasts. Yes, five of them, thirty six dollars. Yes, uh, but um, those, those chicken breasts were premium products. Uh, they were skinless, boneless, uh, free from antibiotics. You, you tend to pay for that. And, and frankly, I did look around and and it responded to Siobhan Morris, the the reporter who posted the, the the picture. And I did say, I mean, those prices are consistent with what we were seeing. At, at, elsewhere it's not regular chicken so that's one thing that i wanted to put out there but how it went viral and how people reacted really points to another issue i think we we're facing right now it's this is this hatred towards grocers and and how uh, our our collective inability to deal with food inflation i think a lot of people are frustrated out there uh, is this due to say, you know, as you said, this was a premium product. Is this bad labeling, poor labeling? Should this be labeled differently? Would that have mattered? Well, for the untrained eye, it's hard to say because uh, if you look very closely at the label, it does uh, say PCFF, which is President's Choice, free from. But I, my guess is that you probably didn't even know what the acronym meant until I just told you. <laughs> mm, yeah. So that's the problem with, so the labeling, I, I must agree the labeling to, to Siobhan's defense. I mean, the labeling wasn't all that clear. And, uh, and that's why I think it's important for people uh, listening in here. Don't leave your house without knowing how much you should be paying for certain products on your grocery list. And once you show up at the grocery store, if there's a product that is, is, is seen as overpriced, uh, it's either you're looking at uh, the wrong product or you need to walk away. That's the thing. And, 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 and in Siobhan's case uh, uh, in Toronto, she did not buy the product, which is good because grocers will, will be stuck with, with some of these products. And guess what? In a few days from now, uh, skinless, boneless chicken breasts in Toronto will likely be cheaper. Hmm. Um, you talked about the mad on for grocery stores. Galen Weston obviously putting himself out there in his ads and such, uh, pretty much becoming public enemy number one. What is the reaction to the company? I mean, is, is this enough to say, hey, you know, it's a premium product um, and it's comparable to other prices for other uh, chains and such? Is that enough? Or as you pointed out, this is a different discussion. Are we having that discussion? Yeah, I mean the reaction was was spectacular and, and frankly vicious. I think. I mean, uh, to to blame one person, Galen Weston, for for our ills at the grocery store is a little a uh, little bit of an overreach. I mean, we're we're dealing with a global phenomena here. Canada has actually one of the lowest food inflation rate in the world. Uh, right after Japan, we had the lowest uh, food inflation rate in the G7. Uh, so we have to keep things into perspective. But Galen Wesson is out there. He's, he's the persona. He's the spokesperson yeah. of, of major brands, No Name and, and President's Choice. And uh, grocery stores are our portal into the food industry. People don't necessarily understand food manufacturing, logistics, farming, but they do, they do relate with, with grocers and grocery stores. And that's why... Dan Wilson has put himself in a position to be a target. I mean, if I tell you, uh, if I ask you who the CEO of Empire Sobeys is, most people wouldn't know that it's Michael mm. Medline. And for Metro, it's Eric Laflesh. And few people have heard of him, but they have the same role as Galen Weston. Should there be more competition, Sylvain? Will that change anything? Would that change anything? 
so on, on December 5th, I was in Parliament in Ottawa, and I was asked uh, the same question by MPs uh, who are investigation investigating into the food inflation situation we're having, we're facing. And, and I did say this, ol- oligopolies aren't a problem until you stop defending uh, independence. And, and that's exactly what we've seen in Canada. We've seen many independents disappear. Many, many uh, cities and towns in Ontario have lost at least one option. Uh, I, I, I know of many towns in Ontario uh, where they were two or three grocery stores. They're down to two or one now. And, and that tends to push prices higher because you have to drive further to get that to that other option. So certainly the Competition Bureau has some answers to provide to uh, to Parliament. Uh, I don't think it has done its job over the last few decades. Do you think this is just one of those stories that people will go, oh, my goodness, it's an inflationary story. It's it's just a, a sign of the times. It's, it, it's the world we're living in now. Or do you think this is resonating with grocers or any other business for that matter? I think it's time for grocers to read the room. To be honest, <laughs> going back to December 5th, okay, I showed up in Parliament to testify. CEOs were asked to show up. They never did. They mm. sent in their financial goons instead. That's an insult. Parliament represents the people of Canada. That's the kind of attitude that needs to disappear. Where do you think this is going, Sylvain? Do you think this is going to stop, like this discussion will end this weekend, or uh, do you think this is going to gain momentum? Because it's surprising how many hits this uh, social media post has received. Well, I mean, it depends. Uh, I mean, if if you're, I mean, first of all, you, you, we have to underscore the fact that these companies are well managed. I mean, these people are competent. It's just, I think it's time for them to start really understanding, empathizing with the Canadian public. And uh, at 10%, people are hurting. A lot of people's quality of life has been impacted by food inflation. And so you kind of have to make an effort. Now, Loblaw has frozen uh, prices for 1,500 products, which is a good start. But more, I think more needs to be done. Uh, Just before the holidays, Metro announced that it was giving $3.7 million to five executives. Five Mm. executives without really showcasing what they're doing with their employees, what they're doing to food banks and things like that. You kind of really have to make it a little bit more explicit instead of just saying, you know what, we're rewarding uh, highly competent executives, but we're forgetting about everyone, everyone else. Dr. Sylvain Charlebois with us, Professor of Food Distribution and Policy, Director of the Agri-Food Analytics Lab at Dalhousie, uh, Dalhousie University. Sylvain, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Have a good weekend. Bye-bye. We certainly know the issues, um, travel issues from last summer, and then it seemed to happen again over the Christmas holiday, Sunwing specifically, apologizing now for all the delays uh, and trouble at airports over the holidays, cancellations and such, but not much about compensation. Let's bring in Gabor Lukacs, President, Air Passenger Rights and Advocacy Group, uh, Advocacy Group, and is with us now. Gabor, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Good afternoon. I'm well, thank you. So is we certainly remember what happened in the summer, Gabor. Is this the same sort of problem? Is it different? Is this about government not being ready, or is this about a private company who dropped the ball? The government was not at fault with respect to readiness at any point with these matters. In the summer, what happened was that the airlines oversold the airport's capacity, the infrastructure's capacity, and then try to blame the government. Now it is airlines that uh, don't handle the weather properly. Of course, we do understand that flights need some time to be canceled due to severe weather. That's it, normal. And we're, after all, we are in Canada. But airlines also know that we are in Canada and bad weather does happen from time to time. And they have to be able to have contingency plans and be able to recover from those quickly. So what did Sunwing do wrong that the others seem to do right at this uh, during the holiday? Well, I don't want to turn Sunwing into some kind of uh, a scapegoat here, because no. uh, when you look at Air Canada and Wedge, they kept passengers for many hours in the tarmac without proper food and water in some cases. In the case of Sunwing, they really didn't communicate well, and uh, they kept people stranded for a number of days, blaming it all on the weather. 
Uh, the, we've heard that politicians are asking uh, Sunwing to come and testify before them. Some want to see the transportation minister there uh, as well. Is this just um, is this lip service or is this a show or is this going to end up in results of some sort? Whether it ends up on the results depends largely on the current government. Uh, I'm very grateful for the opposition parties holding the government accountable, and that starts with the Minister of Transport. I would like to hear from the Minister of Transport what his plans are. We have heard him earlier this week making statements that he has a plan. Well, I don't like the idea of trust us, we got it right. If he has a plan, he should put it forward. He should explain to the public what he's planning to do. We should have some public discussion about it. And uh, we should move also forward with it very quick, swiftly because we have already cautioned five years ago this government's predecessors, the public, the media, everybody, that the government's framework was inadequate and that Canada should be adopting the European Union's gold standard. But they didn't listen to us back then. They didn't listen to us in 2019 when we again cautioned that uh, the APPR had many shortcomings and would not pass muster. So here we are in 2023. Uh, we talked about, you know, whether government issue or private industry that is, is dropping the ball here. Um, what, it, it, what can government do if it is private industry that's dropping the ball? Are, are, is government holding them accountable for this? It is the lack of accountability where the government is at fault. So it is not uh, the airports themselves, but rather that airlines can safely assume that there would be no significant consequences for them when they break the law. As it stands right now, it is more profitable for airlines to break the law, to disobey the law, than to actually comply. We've talked about this many times, Gabor, about uh, you, of course, advocating for air passenger rights. Uh, have we made any progress here over the last few years? The progress that has been made for sure is that there's more awareness of the issue. Passengers are now more asking questions. At least they ask the question, do I have any rights? They may not know the right answer, but there's a growing awareness. In our Facebook group, we have uh, around 98,000 members. Is this happening elsewhere? We're certainly seeing uh, a couple of airlines in the U.S. have problems over the holidays as well. In the United States, you have seen also a Secretary of Transport, Mr. Buttigieg, who has been very clear about creating accountability and giving uh, marching orders to the airlines to smarten up. But there's a growing awareness because airlines have been treating passengers very poorly. And I would hope, I also wish that our friends south of the border would also align themselves sooner or later with the European Union's gold standard. Uh, Gabor, we remember this through the summer. The transportation minister said this would be fixed by Christmas. Clearly, it wasn't. Where are we going with this? Well, uh, passengers in the short term need to hold airlines accountable, whether it is suing the airlines in small claims court or uh, in a class action. But one way that passengers can actually make a difference and do it on their own without the government is creating significant and severe financial consequences in the in the language of money, the one language that corporations actually deal with and understand for the airline's shabby conduct. Gabor Lukacs with us, President Air Passenger Rights Advocacy Group, talking about the disastrous situation, especially for Sunwing, over the uh, Christmas holidays. Gabor, thank you so much for the time. Be well. Happy traveling. Thank you very much for having me. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. Obviously, uh, the latest reports coming out of China are not good. They have just simply failed miserably in their attempts to cr- uh, control COVID-19. Um, not much uptake on vaccination. The uh, vaccination isn't that good anyway, uh, from what we hear. And obviously, the lockdowns and trying to muscle their way out of this uh, has just backfired and blown up. Uh, and now, of course, we're seeing travel restrictions from those traveling from China into other countries um, now being implemented in, in many, many countries, uh, various dozens of countries around the world as uh, China opens up more and uh, and issues more travel uh, permits and visas and such. Let's bring in Charles Burton, Senior Fellow, Center for Advancing Canada's Interest Abroad at the McDonnell-Laurie Institute and with us now. Charles, always a pleasure. Thanks for your time and Happy New Year to you. Yeah, Happy New Year, Scott. Your thoughts on where China finds itself now? Uh, I think it's obvious that they have failed um, in their reaction to and how they've treated uh, COVID-19 and now travel restrictions in place for those traveling from that country. Your thoughts? 
Well, you know, it, it really all started with this um, sudden 180-degree removal of the zero COVID policy, uh, which was, you know, we've talked about it on the show before, where China was um, engaging in very extensive testing, you know, some people being tested day after day after day. And then anyone with the slightest contact with COVID was locked up in their apartment or sent to a uh, an isolation um, facility. Um, a lot of the time, the you know, massive lockdowns resulted in people not being able to get enough food in because they couldn't go out to buy anything and then it had to be delivered. And then, you know, people weren't working and they weren't making any income. Anyway, all of a sudden, the government decided that, that this wasn't working and they completely opened up. Um, mm. The problem with doing it so precipitously without any advance warning is that the hospitals um, weren't prepared. Uh, there wasn't enough even uh, ibuprofen, you know, drugs to relieve fever. And then you have a huge number of people who have virtually no immunity to the disease getting yeah. together and there was an explosion um, and the hospitals are completely overwhelmed. Uh, you can't get an ambulance uh, if you're sick. Um, the, the crematoriums are working overtime. The uh, funeral homes don't know where to put all the bodies. You know, it's just become like absolute bedlam and, and tragedy as particularly elderly people are dying in their numbers where right now the estimates 9,000 people dying a day, um, maybe over 300 million um, people have been infected with uh, COVID since since the change in policy. And they're expecting with Chinese New Year coming up on the 22nd of January and a lot of people who may not have seen their, their family in the countryside for three years heading back, that we'll see a further explosion in rural areas where they have even less um, medical facilities and we could start to see 25,000 um, um, uh, deaths a, a day, could go up to a, a million and a half people dying of uh, COVID unnecessarily because really um, relating to government mismanagement of this whole thing. In the meantime, the Chinese government says nothing's going on here, nothing to see. Yeah. And the humanitarian aid that we've offered uh, has been refused because they say they don't need it. So, uh, China... Pretty bad. China, China up in arms because uh, dozens of countries have implemented travel restrictions, wanting negative tests from people coming from those countries. Yet I understand China does the exact same thing if we want to go there. Yeah, I know. I mean, what talk about so how, that. like Charles, let's talk about that. I mean, you know, I understand we're from different uh, civilizations, we're from different ideologies and such. But how can you say that and keep a straight face? You guys can't do that. But we can. I mean, how does yeah, I mean, and the thing that really amazes and, and the other thing that that amazes me, Charles, is that we hear the media reporting this story and they don't tell you they don't follow it up with saying, oh, by the way, they're doing the exact same thing. Yeah, I know. I mean, I, uh, I, you know, I've I've been pointing this out as well. I mean, it's part of the ridiculous dissembling on the part of the regime that, despite all evidence to the contrary, there is no COVID crisis in China. And that there is a COVID crisis in the capitalist West. Therefore, you know, unjustified for us to suggest that there's any need to, to do any controls of Chinese people coming into our country. But that they insist that, you know, we're rife with COVID and they have to be careful. I mean, it's just it's just part of the failure of the regime to be so far from reality. And I mean, obviously, because China is withholding like real data about what's going on there. They're not giving it to the WHO as they have an international obligation to do. Um, their, their own internal statistics are, are completely nuts, uh, just way, way, you know, fraction of what's really going on. And we don't know if there are new, um, you know, scary variants forming in China that we ought to be prepared for. The best we've been able to do is to test the, um, the sewage out of airplanes to see what's coming in so that uh, if there is a new variant forming because of this explosion of disease all over China, that we could try and make some preparation for it. But, you know, on the whole, there's not a lot we can do. Um, these, you know, this disease doesn't know political boundaries, mm. but uh, certainly the Chinese government seems to have done it to us again. If, if we start to get more, you know, immune-resistant COVID in Canada because they mismanaged their own um, handling of, of the disease in the world's most populous country. 
Charles, how come there hasn't been a greater uptake of the vaccine? I mean, this is a communist country that locks people up, millions of people up for a great period of time. How come it can't make them take a vaccine? Yeah, this is uh, this is troubling. And I mean, of course, the Chinese vaccines are not that effective against Omicron. Yeah. Um, but China refuses to bring in what they refer to as Western mRNA vaccines, even though we've offered them the more effective vaccines. But um, you know, they, they just can't they just don't seem to have it together to to figure out that vaccination is the solution here, not uh, Chinese medicine, um, herbal medicine, which is what the government's been pushing and not this locking people up um, in their apartments so they're not in contact with anybody that, you know, that that only defers the disease. And as it turns out, that policy has resulted in a worse um, uh, outbreak of coronavirus in, in China than in any other country. You know, they're they're basically crushing into a matter of months what the U.S. suffered over three years in terms of prevalence yeah. of disease. And probably they'll have the highest rate of death of any country on the planet by the time they're finished. So, you know, from that point of view, uh, um, uh, I think that we really have to, to take a lesson from this. And I mean, one effect, which, you know, is tragic, but could be a, a silver lining in a cloud is this may well lead to the end of the communist regime in China as people in China, you know, when you're, when you're having a regime that mismanages to the extent that, Seniors are getting sick and dying miserable deaths. I think anybody would decide that that's just not a good government. Here's hoping. Charles Burton with us, senior fellow with the Center for Advancing Canada's Interests Abroad at the Macdonald Laurier Institute, talking about China and, unfortunately, their failure with their zero COVID-19 tolerance policies. Charles, thanks for the time. Be well. Have a great weekend. Take care. You too. Former Finance Minister Bill Morneau, who has a new book coming out, thinks the Fed spent way too much money at the beginning of COVID and is worried about a recession and is very critical of uh, the Prime Minister on his uh, fiscal prowess or lack thereof. Uh, Eric Cam, Professor of Economics, Toronto Metropolitan University, with us now. Eric, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you, too. And in fact, for those of you who don't know, happy anniversary, because... On January the 6th, 1974, at 6 p.m., Global News was launched to the world. So happy anniversary. <laughs> I think I should have known that, Eric. Uh, good for uh, you. know, And you know what? Tomorrow, January 7th, is my 38th year in the business. There you go. All right. It's that time of year. Um, your thoughts on the comments from former finance minister Bill Morneau. He obviously isn't very flattering towards the prime minister in his uh, latest book. Uh, a reporter from CTV was uh, got an interview with him and, and was uh, quite aggressive and asked twice if uh, he thought that the prime minister was a good manager of the economy. She had to ask him twice. She clarified the question and he answered in very, you know, uh, in a very polite way, we could all do better. What are your thoughts? You know, if you're going to ask somebody that question, I like to ask people who don't have, as they say, a dog in the race. And as we mm. all know, Bill Morneau was as involved in these decisions as anybody until he upped and quit the race about a third of the way through. So I take things that Mr. Morneau says with a grain of salt, although I have to agree with him on the context of what he's saying. I've been very critical of the Prime Minister and the Finance Department and the Bank of Canada for what they did during the pandemic. I've been loud and proud about it all through 2022 that we printed far too much money and in a sense created for ourselves an inflationary situation where we had too many dollars chasing too few goods, especially in the face of those supply chain restrictions. So you almost we almost institutionalized both halves of the equation for inflation. Too many dollars, too few goods, and we did what we did. And now, of course, we're finding out almost inevitably about the level of fraud and monies that were, in a sense, wasted which really should surprise nobody in the public sector these days because that's the MO of the public sector. So as I read the article that you read, and I've heard other people speak about it, I don't necessarily as an economist disagree, and I, I would stake my reputation on that. I would just, Mr. Morneau is trying to sell books. 
And Mr. Morneau is part of the problem and was not part of the solution. And people should keep that in the back of their minds as well. I'll ask you the question, Eric. Is the prime minister an effective manager of the economy? Um, Does he have a grasp on this? Is it a priority? I don't think the prime minister is an effective manager of much. Um, But I'll stick to what I know, which is economics. And trust me, I only know a little bit about that. But the prime minister's come out with really some very boneheaded statements. I mean, at the very start of the pandemic to announce that I don't know anything about monetary policy or I'm too busy to worry about monetary policy. What type of message does this send to your electorate? You've got almost 40 million people in a country that you've sent far too many of them home, locked their businesses, locked their doors. And then you've said, it's okay, we'll take care of you and and we'll float your bills. So what have you done? You took the Canadian emergency wage subsidy and they kept changing the name of that. But no matter how you slice it, it's over a hundred billion dollars, over a hundred billion dollars. And Lord knows how much of that was fraudulent. So, you know, what do you want me to say? Do I think he manages the economy well? No, he's from a long line of liberals that I don't think manage the economy well. But I also just don't like his flippant attitude and flippant language with respect to things like, well, we have better things to worry about than the economy. Because I'd argue if you're one of the people, Scott, that's a paycheck away from insolvency, you better hope this guy's worried about the economy because you're close to losing your home. You were talking about Morneau uh, just as much to blame as the prime minister is. Uh, During this interview, uh, Morneau alluded that um, he and the prime minister just looked at the economy differently. What does that mean? Uh, That's a very good question. I mean, you know, one thing about Mr. Morneau, he's a very wealthy man. He ran a very, very successful business, which is one thing that the prime minister didn't. And I'd like to think that at the core of that, at the core, I think that Mr. Morneau realizes that the prime minister made some mistakes. Bringing about major tax changes and things like the carbon tax in a time of economic contraction is economic suicide. And I've never met Mr. Morneau, but I'd like to think that if we got him alone and I was speaking to him, I'd say, what would you say about the carbon tax and things like that? And he'd be far more aligned with, say, me than the prime minister. And he would admit that in a time of contraction, in a time where it looks like the labor market is a little bit shaky and people's disposable incomes are falling to the tune of about $3,000 for every working person, he would say it's no time to increase carbon taxes, or frankly, any other taxes until we get the economy under control. I don't think the prime minister's in that boat. I think that he has a real agenda that's not so hidden, and it doesn't include things like economic solvency. He seems to be headstrong on his environmental agenda, his indigenous agenda. And listen, those are really important things. Everybody wants wants those things to succeed, but they don't want them to succeed more than they want to lose their home. So I just think that... Uh, Unlike Mr. Morneau, I think the prime minister has really taken his eyes off the prize. Uh, What about the fallout from these comments from a former finance minister? I don't think it'll have much effect on the finance minister or the former finance minister. I don't think it's going to have much of an effect except to probably sell a lot of books. And in that sense, Mr. Morneau will have done what he set out to do. I mean, I don't have to tell you, you're in the business of ratings. You want people to listen and you want people to read. And so if it does that, he's been successful. But like I started off the interview by saying, I respect Mr. Mono on a number of levels, but you've always got to keep things into perspective. And remember, as they say, where is it coming from and who is the speaker? And he is one of the people that set up this $100 billion problem. Uh, He says, I do worry about the potential for a recession, yet we hear today uh, unemployment uh, dropping again, only a tenth of a point, but 5%. That's a pretty low number historically, my goodness. Uh, Talk of a recession and a low unemployment rate, a high demand for housing that we don't have. This doesn't seem like it's going to be a typical recession if we do get into it. You know, and this is the problem between static and dynamic. If I take a picture, a snapshot of the economy today, you're exactly right. It looks pretty good. The problem is, is that an economy isn't static, it's dynamic. And so we really have to drill down, as the corporate types say, into those employment figures. Are they full-time jobs? Are they part-time jobs? Do they come with benefits? Do they come with pensions? Are those jobs going to vanish four to six months from now if they're contract work? I'd really like to know those things. And those those data uh, have not been released yet. And one of the other things I said for a long time, and I'll say it again on your show, is that almost every market 
will be, if it has not yet, been affected by the inflation in this economy. And the labor market has not yet. But I'm telling you that it will. And when it does, that's going to be the path to a contraction. Now, will it be as bad as some of the soothsayers say? No, I don't think it's going to be as bad. And I don't think it's going to last as long. But I, I know that I know that the labor market is not so special that it is immune from inflationary pressure. And when it hits, then we're going to have decreases in gross domestic products. So the good listenership has to be skeptical of statistics because I can sell them lots of different ways. I only got a few seconds left. A, a spokesperson for Manpower said they were impressed that these numbers came largely from the private sector and a section or the private sector rather, and not from government jobs. Your thoughts on that? Yes, it is. It's wonderful because for a long time, the only thing growing was the public sector, and that's no way to build an economy. But for fear of being repetitive, I'd like to see what types of jobs they're creating. And I just am skeptical of the liberal government saying, look over here, don't look over here. Are these quote unquote real long term contract stable jobs or are these short term part time jobs? Because they appear in the statistics as jobs. And so it can be a little bit deceiving. Eric Ham with us, professor of economics, Toronto Metropolitan University. Eric, as always, thanks so much for your time. Be well. Have a great weekend. 38 years, you're going to get it right one day, Scott. All the best. Uh, I'm trying, man. Scott Radley, host of the Scott Radley Show, coming up after the 6 o'clock news. You can read him in your Hamilton Spectator. He is with us now. Scott, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. It is Friday evening, Scott. We are all well. So what do you want to talk about? My uh, loss of hearing, uh, Chinese travel restrictions, or uh, Team Canada? Yeah, <laughs> uh, uh, I've, I've been tied up today. Why have you lost hearing? Uh, I've lost my hearing about six weeks ago when I was on holiday. Um, I've, I've, I've always had hearing issues. Uh, and whenever I get an ear infection or something like that, my hearing slowly deteriorates. Uh, basically what happened, uh, I'm, I'm, uh, on holiday and, um, I got up and, uh, could hear fine to go to the washroom and seven o'clock in the morning, went back to bed for an hour, got up, couldn't hear a thing. It's like my finger is stuck in my ear. Been like that for six weeks. So, um, bizarrely, my sister had the exact same thing not going to the bathroom um i don't know how no, that was just why i was i don't know how i was up at 7 a.m you were working but to pop your ear no drum, no but um uh no she she had the same thing where where all of a sudden she just could not hear in one ear it's bizarre what'd she do she's still trying to figure out how to get it. she's been to doctors and been for tests and and you know i, I look i i i am very getting very tired and very bored, honestly, to some degree of all the people. Every time someone has a symptom of anything now, people say, did you get vaccinated? It must be the vaccine. <laughs> this is the- I had this I had this long before I was vaccinated. No, no, but- I mean, not this year, not this situation, but I've had others in the past long before that. So I, I don't dispute for a second that there are people who almost certainly have had have had illnesses or spinoffs or problems as a result of the vaccine. I, I think any vaccine is going to affect. Mm certain people but I gotta tell you it, we're now at a time when literally anything happens to anyone yeah and oh you mu- it must be the vaccine and that's it and, and here's the thing we may find out I mean I got no idea you have no idea none of us have any idea 25 years from now when time has passed and everything we may have scientists who look back and say you know what that vaccine really did people in it may. We don't know. Um, but boy, it is. It is I doubt the, it. Uh, I, hey, I'm not predicting. I'm saying, you know, we yeah. don't know what the future is going to hold. But it just, it's funny. I wrote a piece today. Uh, it was in the Spectator about Paul Osbaldiston, the the legendary. Yeah, I read for that. The that's cast. that's so unfortunate. It, yeah. it is, and he's been going through some terrible health problems that are unidentified. And I got to tell you, my email blew up today with everyone saying, "Was he vaccinated? This must be the vaccine. It's got to be really? the vaccine." Oh, the, really? Now I had the other part was, and I got to tell you, I'm going to be forwarding him a, a, a letter or an email. Uh, I also received many people everyone's a doctor because they've all had someone who's i had someone who went through just something just like that and it was this obscure thing so i'm going to be sending them this whole list of hey you may as well get your doctor to ask about these things because they were all things that people said they had that caused similar symptoms but it is just but the number one thing was oh it must be the vaccine 
Um, I just want to say this quite loudly and, and and so everybody hears. And this is not about the people who work in healthcare. They are dedicated. They are the best. They are screaming for our help. But our healthcare system blows. It sucks. And here's why. Went to the doctor about my hearing issue. And she forwarded me to a specialist. I have to wait 12 months to hear to see a hearing specialist 12 months and you want to know something what what by the then, hell is that scott by then it will either it, be resolving itself or it will be permanent damage it'll that be permanent be resolved i know i know yeah. so like who the hell stands up and puffs their chest and says we've got a great system all we're well we're patting the prime minister on the back for doing the same thing with dental care the same thing with uh, daycare and probably pharmacare building the same crappy system that we have now our healthcare system sucks it needs to be fixed we need the provinces and the prime minister to get together and come up with a new system not just keep throwing money but, at it, but uh, come but up see with there, a new system scott that is that right there is the problem yeah. because the only solution that anyone in government ever seems to have is, well, then there must be more money needed to go to it. We have well, again, per capita, with this system, we have one of the, the highest yeah. paid healthcare systems. We do. We put more money per capita into healthcare than most places, and it's not working. So it's the system, not the lack of resources. And let me say this. The only way to fix the current system in its current form is to just keep throwing money at it. That's the only way to fix it, as opposed to completely dissembling it and starting fresh. Because it's amazing to me how many Canadians are so proud of this system that is failing so miserably. Well, and, 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 you know, heaven help you if you throw out the proposition to say, maybe if we were to privatize some parts of our system. Which already has been done. I know, but just, but nobody sees that as being happening. The, we, there are many people in this country that believe that our system is entirely public, that there is no privatized stuff. Right. Now, you mentioned some things that go, oh, well. But it, if you mention, maybe we ought to consider some more privatization. People lose their minds. And to me, the question is, okay, then, like I said with the housing issue, when you don't want a tall building in your neighborhood and you don't want this and you don't want that, well, what is the answer then? If you're going to simply complain about and and say no to everything, please come forward because you clearly must have a better idea. Please come (laughs) forward and share what the good idea is because simply saying, no, that doesn't work or no, we can't do that has got us where we are right now. And, and, and the other one is simply say, well, we need another 25, 30, 50, 80 billion dollars a year thrown into it. I don't believe for one second that if we put a hundred billion dollars into our healthcare system more, that it would solve all the problems. It would just make everybody involved higher paid. Scott Radley with us, host of the Scott Radley Show. You can read him in your Hamilton Spectator coming up right after the 6 o'clock news. Scott, as always, thanks so much for the time. Have a great show and a great weekend. Thanks. Or, sorry. Thanks, Scott. I should probably have talked louder. Thanks, Scott. Have a great weekend. If you're hearing feedback during my show, it's because my headphones are so loud. The microphone is picking up my headphones. All right. Thank you, Scott. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. That's it for us. Thanks for listening. As always, greatly appreciated. And as always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer, to have the last word. This last word from Mr. Lowe. Some say our great nation is broken and has lost its way. This is furthest from the truth. Just look at what our Canadian junior hockey team did yesterday. Even more, look what the cities of Halifax and Moncton did on short notice to host the juniors. Most important, did you see the crowds and the singing of our national anthem? Our great nation may be tarnished a bit, but not broken. So be proud of our nation and sing our national anthem with pride every chance you have. 